Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. We have a new podcast launching this week exclusively on Spotify with Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman called Music Exists. Here's the trailer. Hello, this is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. Hello, this is Chuck Klosterman. I'm a friend of Chris Ryan and The Ringer. And this is Music Exists, a podcast where we talk about how we think about music. Yeah, this is not a podcast where we tell you what music to listen to or we necessarily comment on what's happening in the culture right now or what you should be listening to tomorrow before your friends do. This is a podcast about thinking about music even when it's not playing. Yeah, how does music shape the world you see around you, the world you feel around you? How does it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, particularly if the music that makes you feel things about yourself is Steely Dan or Black Sabbath. Or Radiohead. Yeah, that happens. That comes up a lot. Music Exists, a podcast about Radiohead. (laughs) (laughs) Available exclusively on Spotify. the ringer nba show i'm chris vernon and want to start off today's show by talking to you about kevin o'connor um this whole weekend i was at all-star weekend in chicago and going around and about it was a tremendous reminder of how many great people and caring people there are out there for those of you that don't know uh kevin's father passed away on friday And I know he and his mother have been incredibly appreciative of all the love and support that has been shown to their family. And I can't tell you how many people came up to me while I was at All-Star Weekend uh, wanting me to pass along well wishes uh, and concern for the O'Connors. And, you know, through this whole thing, he was really vulnerable in letting everybody know about what was going on with his father's cancer diagnosis. And he turned bad news into what became bringing out the best in everyone, whether it was dunks for cancer, raising the awareness, um, and also allowing people to be vulnerable with him and share their stories. And I talked to him this weekend and he's doing okay. He was, he was saying, Hey, I still want to be able to talk about the Elam ending and all the stuff when I come back to the show. Um, classic. Yeah. And he'll be back sooner than later. But again, thank you. Uh, to all of you, you have really made a hard time a lot better uh, by all of your kind words and encouragement to the O'Connors. And I know he and his mother are so appreciative. And with that, we will talk about basketball. Uh, Jonathan Charks uh, from The Ringer is joining me on the show today. And I know, Jonathan, that um, I communicated with you over the weekend. You communicated with Kevin also. He wants to be here so badly. He's there with his mother. They're adjusting to life. Um, and he will be back, as I said, but I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, you and Kevin have really created something great here, and it's just an honor to fill in for him right now. And yeah, I wish he was here. I miss you a lot, buddy, and we're, we're waiting for you to come back. All right. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I was in Chicago all weekend, um, and I went to all of the events. And I must tell you, Charts, as it's all going on, it's very nerve-wracking and it's just very, very busy, uh, especially when it's in a big city. Like, juxtaposed from last year when it was in Charlotte. Charlotte, you're at the hotel and you can really walk everywhere you need to be for the entire weekend. And 
in Chicago, I mean, I bet I took 30-something Ubers. I mean, you're just in a car all the time going Oof. from here to here. Everything is a, a couple-hour time commitment to pull it off. Um, and so you're just so – you're just it's a rat race the whole time, uh, all day, until you get back late that night from the events of the evening being over. Um, and I didn't even go out anywhere after all of the events. Like last year, I went to some of the parties and everything. I mean, this year – you're just so gassed after it's all done, but I'm 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 there yesterday. I finally get back home after All Star Weekend. I'm going back through all the pictures and all the things that happened, and I've got to tell you, as I was going through everything, you know, it's all happening in the moment. But from the Rising Stars to All Star Saturday Night to the All Star Game on Sunday, I don't know how it came off on uh, as a TV event all weekend. But I, I, every event was great this year. The Rising Stars game was awesome. And the last, like, three minutes of that turning into a dunk contest, the whole crowd was going absolutely crazy. All-Star Saturday night, skills competition with Bam Adebayo, the three-point with Buddy Heald winning it at the end, the dunk contest that ends in controversy, and then, of course, the All-Star game, which is the best All-Star game I can remember since I was a kid and and Magic came back, honestly. Like, that's the last one that I think is as memorable as what took place on Sunday night. But all in all, I thought this was a great showcase for the NBA. How'd it come off with you watching it? Yeah, it was cool. It kind of felt like you had these two generations coming up, like with Rising Stars. And you had Trey, Luca, Zion... And you could really kind of feel, oh, this is the future of the league. These are the guys who in two or three years, it's going to be their all-star game. And you can have the current generation, you know, with Giannis, Kawhi, LeBron in the actual game. And yeah, the Elam ending was awesome. It kind of felt like watching pickup at the end there. It's like, oh, we got our five. You got your five. We're going to 21. Let's play. That was great. Yeah. And these guys really trying, you know, taking charges, screaming yeah. at the re- screaming at the referees. Like, and I think what the other thing is they made those guys care. And I think this makes people, it certainly makes me hopeful. Kevin and I had discussed many times when the midseason tournament has come up and people say, well, why would they even care? Like, why, what, what would make these guys care about that? I don't know. They just got them to care about the all-star game. So I figure they can figure out how to make guys care about a mid-season tournament. And I don't know if you want to do the Elam ending in the mid-season tournament. I don't know if that is. I mean, how much do you think the ending score, knowing what the ending score is, that it's 157 uh, at the moment that they add the 24, and that there is no time limit, and it really is just like playing pickup. How much do you think that played into the level of competition? Because I, I feel like it did a lot. I think it definitely helps because the score is always in goal, like always in range. Whereas right. if you have a clock and your team is really ahead, it's like, ah, this is over, whatever. But now we're just playing pickup. And like you were saying, these guys pick up all the time and they want to win playing pickup. So I wouldn't want to win playing out here too. Right. And so here's hoping that um, they can figure out not only that midseason tournament, but for All-Star Weekend, and I know Heat Check covered it yesterday, um, 
I think it's going to end up being really memorable. There are just moments from everything. The Rising Stars game with the whole Luka knocking down the half-court shot uh, and the meme with him and Trey Young that has been passed around all weekend. And then Zion and Ja Morant and all these guys having a dunk contest at the end of that game. Um, And then, of course, All-Star Saturday night. You know, look, I know that it's a bad deal for Aaron Gordon to not have won a dunk title, but I kind of feel like in this bizarre way, him not winning it and the Rob, like the, him not winning it becomes the huge story more than Derek Jones winning it. And so I feel like Aaron Gordon's dunk contest performance typically, you know, much like Dominique, honestly, years ago, and people still remember him and Jordan going head to head. But Aaron Gordon has gone head to head with Zach Levine and now Derek Jones Jr. And the, I, I, I guess the downfall is if you don't win, you are forgotten in most competitions. Uh, certainly the details are forgotten in most competitions. But that just will not be so for Aaron Gordon. You know what I mean? Like now that this has happened twice, I feel like his dunk contest become more memorable because of what's happened to him. It's kind of like Pete Rose not being in the Hall of Fame. Right? Right. Yeah, you end up talking about it more than you would otherwise. I mean, how many dunk contests do you even remember from like 10 years ago? I couldn't tell you who won. Very few. And certainly, you know, like how they have those sporkle quizzes where you've got to like fill out who won, who won the, you know, you got to get, you got to guess the answer. If you told me, uh, if you gave me a sporkle quiz of who got second in the dunk contest, Dominique Wilkins and Aaron Gordon, I think are the only ones I would get. Over the years, if you had me guess who got second in dunk contest. And so they weirdly become very, very memorable. And then, of course, I think I do think we're going to remember the All-Star game and the way it ended. And it's almost because with the way it ending being Anthony Davis's free throw and so many people complaining about it ending on a free throw, it will actually make it memorable because it ended in a way that had, you know, that made news or certainly created some kind of takes on it. Um, but all in all, I know the, the the ratings have been a story all year for the NBA and whatever, but I, I, I have a hard time believing that somebody watched any of the events of the weekend and were not entertained because it was just entertaining all weekend long. I like, too, when the three-point shootout, the, what was it, the Mountain Dew Zone? Good yes. sponsorship, by the way. That was a cool little twist to the whole thing, adding the deeper shots. Yes, I liked it, too. Um, and so, anyways, uh, all in all, All-Star Weekend uh, was great. I thought the NBA did a very, very good job with it. Um, and, look, I was there in Charlotte last year. I don't remember all that much that, that took place. Uh, throughout that weekend. But I do feel like I'm going to look back a year from now and remember a lot of the stuff that happened in Chicago. All right, so regarding the NBA season, which we don't have games for a couple of days and guys are still uh, enjoying their all-star break, in the middle of this stuff going on over the weekend, there is a report from ESPN, both Adrian Wojnarowski and Brian Windhorst are reporting that this John Beeline story and basically that 
one of the coaches in the NBA might not come back after the All-Star break. And so I'm reading through this. You know this has been a deal all year long. It has gone poorly with John Beeline. They've talked of player revolt. They've talked about these player meetings. There's been controversy um, on and on. And so now the story comes out that they are going to meet and decide a future uh, and that he may not be coming back after the All-Star break. That's where it stands now as of time recording. Charts. This guy, you can't come back now. Like, there's no way you can come back and coach that team after this story has been around all weekend. It would, now it becomes insanely awkward if you come back after the All Star break and be like, all right, guys, I'm feeling refreshed and let's go finish out this season strong. Like, I, I don't even know why that wasn't followed up with, okay, now it's over because. They can have whatever meeting they want to have. Once the story is out there that you're talking about not coming back, I don't know how you come back. You think it's about money? I saw he had a five-year contract. Imagine oh. getting fired one halfway through the first year of a five-year contract. All guaranteed. Well, well I, look, I think he doesn't want to coach them anymore. And I think probably Cleveland doesn't want him to be their coach. So yes, I would imagine that it is probably about money in the sense of trying to figure out a settlement here. What am I getting paid for what I have done? Am I getting paid any more of that contract that I am owed? Are you going to fire me? Or can we do this in some kind of a way where it's amicable for both people? Because truth be told, I'm going to go back and I'll make, you know, a couple million dollars coaching a college team next year anyway. Yeah, the sad thing was he was a great college coach. I mean, it'll probably be forgotten in NBA circles, but Beeline was very progressive. He got a lot of guys into the league. He played a very fun style of play, but you kind of look back at it, oh, at 67 years old, first time in the NBA, it kind of felt like a golden parachute for him, and he took it, and now it's ripped. And now, you know, what the money's for, I guess, is taking hits like this. But here's what I'll say. Maybe John Beeline who I think is a great basketball coach. His teams at West Virginia, his teams at Michigan were unbelievable uh, to behold. I have a very, very high opinion of him as a basketball coach. And I don't know if it would have worked out in a different situation, but I do know, and this is a little bit in retrospect, and I, I probably should have been able to, you know, tab this right off the start. That is a disastrous situation to walk into, And you have resentful veterans combined with trying to build for the future with young guys. And you have a guy that's going to come in there and it would be a a reasonable coach for an all young team that you are trying to teach basketball to and that you can get real results and make them much better players. Um, With veterans, they ain't trying to learn how to pivot and learn how to you know, throw a pass correctly and all the kind of things that John Beeline was doing. Uh, you know, when you read all those stories, like this is the kind of stuff, basic stuff. Um, you have to get results and you have to get them quickly or else that stuff does not work. And I, and I, and I bring you back to Hubie Brown, one of the first guys, uh, that I, that I ever covered. Um, Hubie walked into a locker room and said, look, you're all losers. 
And that's why I'm here. And there's a guy packing up him and his family because of you. And they're having to move. But I'm going to turn you into winners. And all those players like rolled their eyes and were like, yeah, what? Like, this dude is mean, you know? But he walked out and then he started teaching them and they started seeing results. And then by the second year, they're winning 50 games. He's winning coach of the year. And so it, he... He told them that things were going to get better. He told them that they were going to win basketball games and they were going to progress, and it it worked. And so they all believed in him, and they ended up loving him and thinking he was one of the best coaches that they ever had. But if you don't win, it will not work. And I mean, th- that Cleveland situation was set up to lose anyway, and it's the most unstable thing ever. Sharks, how about this? I read this last night. This is six coaches in seven years, four years, four of those years, they made the friggin' NBA finals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I mean, funny you talk about, you talk about Memphis, right? That team had Pau Gasol, didn't it? With yes. Brown on it. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm looking at this roster in Cleveland, and what turns out to me is, like, it's one thing to not, to not win games, but if you're not winning games and no one's passing the ball, that's really miserable. Like their leading assist guy is Garland at three point eight. Right? Unbelievable. So if you're a veteran and you're losing every night and you have two guards who aren't moving the ball, it's like this is horrible, right? Like I feel to me like that's my big takeaway from this team is like if you're rebuilding, you've got to have somebody in there who moves the ball because if you're rebuilding and a bunch of guys are just jack shots, it's just oof. and somebody like Beeline and those college type coaches that are can be hard on guys. Those are better suited to take over winners. You know what I mean? Like, and then augment. And now their strategy and what they can bring to the table helps the situation more so than like, and I like you remember years ago where the the, the Detroit Pistons were awesome and they're going to the East Finals, but losing, and then they bring in Larry Brown and they win the title. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. And, and and Larry Brown, he ended up with all kinds of teams resenting him, hating him, you know, whatever. But he took over a winner and he could go in there and he could augment what they were doing and just implement the strategy. And so it works when that's what you are bringing to the table. But if you put Larry Brown with the young team, it was always trouble, you know? And I do think that that's probably true of most college coaches take over crappy teams. That's the truth. And the ones that haven't, have usually done pretty well. Like Brad Stevens. Well, like, like, yeah, Billy Donovan. Billy right? Donovan, yeah. And then the ones that have taken over bad situations, they usually lose. You know, I mean, look, everybody could say, well, we've seen this a lot with college coaches, and you go all the way back to Rick Pitino. I promise you, if Rick Pitino that year, if they would have gotten Tim Duncan, Rick Pitino's probably looked at as one of the greatest coaches to ever walk the face of the earth. But they didn't get Tim Duncan. They got whoever, Ron Mercer, or whoever they ended up with. Well, it's kind of like with with coaching, really, the most important part of coaching is picking a good team, right? That's like 90% of the battle right there. Well, and those jobs aren't open. That's why I was so excited for my guy, Taylor Jenkins, when he got that Memphis job. I'm like, oh, there's actually good pieces here. If he'd gone to Cleveland, it'd have been the same thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You end up falling by the wayside. Um, So anyways, here's what we know. No matter what happens with John Beeline, it it would be absolutely stunning and awkward to see him on the sidelines post-All-Star break. And if he's not, I do wonder, because I I just covered this guy the last couple of years, if my guy J.P. Bickerstaff's going to get the job there, which would be so funny, Charks, because J.P. Bickerstaff was 
the lead assistant for Kevin McHale, and they get rid of him in Houston, and he takes over as the interim. He was the lead assistant oh, for David Fisdale. David Fisdale got fired, and J.B. Bickerstaff took over as the interim. And now it would be another guy where he's he's the assistant wow. for John Beeline, and he takes over for the rest of the year. I mean, kiss of death. If he's oh, on, your, th- on, on your coaching staff, I I don't I don't I don't know if it's the kiss of death or if uh, JB is just better prepared than anyone for this situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's such a good guy, and he and he can be an NBA coach for sure. Um, but I I swear it follows it. It follows him, and he may end up being an interim for uh, the third time if that's the way they go in Cleveland. A um, couple other quick things. I have no idea what Houston is doing signing Jeff Green. I Look, this has been a thing on here for a long time, Charks. It, you look at all the teams over time that have gotten worse by playing Jeff Green a lot of minutes and better when he is gone. From Oklahoma City to Boston to Memphis to Utah. I guess he had a moment in Cleveland uh, during the playoffs, but by and large, uh, Jeff Green has not been a winning player. And adding Jeff Green and Damari Carroll, I would imagine you're adding them so that they're guys that you would actually play. I, I said this when Utah signed him. I thought it was insane. And I will say this again. I have no idea why Houston is signing Jeff Green and this will not this will not be good for them. He is not he's just not a winning player. I don't know. He he there's no player maybe in NBA history that looks the part more and yet your team loses when he's out on the court. Like it's almost without fail over the years your team loses with him on the court. The number is a negative. My my first thought was those Cleveland teams though with Green, with what Houston's doing. Because when they went to the finals that one year, they're playing Green as a small ball five. And I feel like that's the hope, is you're going to play him behind P.J. Tucker, play some small five minutes. And if you're Houston, you know D'Antoni only plays like seven guys anyways, right? So He does. He's not a, def- he's not a defender, though, either. He is not a defender. I just, look, and Houston fans are going to say, oh, anything Houston does, you just crap on. I mean, look. I've been telling, I've been talking about this with Jeff Green for years, for years. Well, Memphis I, is history with Jeff Green. I lived y'all have, it. Y'all go way back. I lived it. I lived it. I had, I had people, I had national writers coming on my show saying, I think that this just got Memphis possibly to the Western Conference Finals by acquiring Jeff Green. Let me tell you this. That was the year that they played against, and they were, uh, they were up two to one against the Warriors. Tony Allen tore his hamstring, went out. Jeff Green played. They scored like 60 points the next game. Jeff Green playing instead of Tony Allen was a absolute debacle. And so I, I've, I've lived this. I've lived it. And I've seen it in the other cities that he has gone to since. And nobody gets worse when Jeff Green is taken out of the equation. Nobody. No team ever gets worse. And that first that first round pick, right? That's a, the Jeff Green pick, the one you're sending the boss. It is the Jeff, it is the Jeff Green pick. <laughs> Thank God for John Morant. 
Thank God for John Morant. Um, oh, and and Demare Carroll, I mean, he's been in witness protection all year, so I have no idea if he can play anymore or not. None. Yeah, but he's he, getting up there. He's a tough guy. He's tough. But I'll. Uh, but I. But I don't know if he could help this situation at all. Um, last thing, real quickly, on the news front, the G League Players Union is a go. That is happening. That was voted on over the weekend, and this was reported uh, by Adrian Wojnarowski back in the fall. Uh, but it is another step in the right direction towards you know one hundred percent total legitimacy for the G League as a league. And I do wonder if. You know, as you have seen this thing grow from whatever it is, eight teams to like 28 teams, the majority of teams in the NBA have their own G League team and are using it. You are seeing all kinds of players, including now all stars that were outstanding players in the G League and have spent time there. A lot of rookies uh, and second year players have spent a lot of time there in development. And so now as this, you know, as this progresses, I do wonder what the G League is going to look like in five to ten years because I will tell you, as someone who does you know, go to G League games every once in a while, the quality of play and the quality of player is just infinitely better than it was even four or five years ago. And I think there's a lot of guys who were going overseas because that's where they could make a lot of money and there was the the pay was so crappy in the G League that they were they would just go and they would play in France or they would play in Greece or they would play wherever and a lot of guys still do um but as the money gets better and the environment for the players get better i do think you are going to see even more growth than we have seen already which i think is is very good considering everything that's gone on with college basketball and that there have been guys that are high-level prospects already going and playing in Australia and New Zealand and wherever else already, right? Yeah, I was at the uh, G League Showcase in December. And when I heard about this, I was thinking about guys like, I think people know, do you remember Travis Ware? Yeah. The UCLA big man? He's yeah. like 32 now. He's like in his eighth season of the G League. I mean, I guess he's making a living doing it. It was very, um, there's like Crash Davises now all over the G League. Just guys who make a living playing you know, hooping in random cities in the U.S. And if they can make more money doing that, more power to them. You would, you, you, and, and I've seen, gosh, I've seen all kinds of guys. Um, who did I see last year? I saw Anthony Bennett last year. All he did was shoot threes. And he was an absolute house. Former number one pick, Anthony Bennett. The beat was there earlier in this season uh, before he got cut. Marcus Teague, you know, is still playing in the G League. I, yes, you're right. There's all kinds of guys that you remember, and a lot of former NBA players that are still playing basketball uh, in the G League. Um, but anyways, hopefully this just continues to get better and better, and that was a good sign over the weekend with everybody seemingly in favor of this players' union. Um, and so it strengthens it, and hopefully it just keeps on becoming a better and better league. All right, Sharks. So as I mentioned, we're at this All-Star break, which is certainly farther down the road than the midway point of the season, but we got about 25 games left, a little bit more. Um, four questions for post-All-Star break NBA. Are you ready? Let's do it. Whose chemistry are you most confident in coming together in time for the playoffs? And there are a lot of teams out there that are prospective playoff teams that can be on this. 
the Clippers, who have not played all that many minutes together, honestly, yet those minutes have been highly successful. The Jazz, who got Conley back before the All-Star break, and Conley was very good uh, before the All-Star break. The Rockets, who are adding more pieces to the mix, and it's felt like there has been amazing James Harden and then mediocre to nothing like himself, James Harden. And then there has been mediocre to nothing like himself, Russell Westbrook, and amazing Russell Westbrook. But simultaneously, it's been hard to get to. The Pacers are including Oladipo back into their lineup. The Mavs, who are still got to figure out the whole Luka Porzingis thing. And then the Pelicans, who obviously have put Zion into the mix where Brandon Ingram had become an all-star. Um, prior to Zion being in the mix. So Clippers, Jazz, Rockets, Pacers, Mavs, Pelicans. Give me the two that you are most confident their chemistry comes together. Okay, I think I'm looking at the Rockets because I look at that roster and everyone's roles make sense. There's not too much adjustment, right? Everyone knows, okay, this is Russ and James's team. Everyone else, we're going to spot up, play off those guys, defend. And there's not like, when you talk about guys gaining chemistry and integrating, usually it's, will certain guys accept lesser roles, right? And like, how will the pieces fit together? And I think with Houston, like the pieces just fit together pretty seamlessly because everyone knows what they're supposed to do on this team. But right? when we're talking it's about them, simple we're, style I, we're not talking about all their players though, Charles. We're talking about those two simultaneously being great. And that's yeah, I, been I hard having, to pull off. I think, but I think not having the center has helped a lot. And I think if you look at their numbers this season, going back to like November, when it was just Russ and James and no Capella, they've been a lot better. I think they're leaning into that. It's five out basketball. It's pretty simple. So that, that'd be my guess, the team that's kind of got a peak going forward in the playoffs. Okay, number one for me is the Clippers. The Clippers because... You look at their numbers and when they have had healthy George and healthy Kawhi, like they're like a, you know, plus 10 type team, plus nine type team. And I do think when they are completely healthy, assuming they are healthy um, and they go into the playoffs, they got a bunch of tough guys on their team. And I think that those guys are not hard guys to play with. It's just they have not as a unit played a ton of minutes together, but I'd imagine down the home stretch of this season, they'll get it together. And it's just the talent overwhelms. And I think that they will, they will end up getting it together. And that when it's time, when it's go time, when it's playoff time, and you've got, if you've got a healthy Kawhi and you've got a healthy Paul George, I think they will be the devastating team that we expected them to be when they threw this all together. And the other ones, the mean, jazz, and the other ones to me, the jazz. Just because okay. right before the break, Conley was like 25 and five and so and and they were winning. And so they kind of got him integrated to where he and obviously I covered him his whole career. He they'll figure it out. They will they will figure that out. Um, and they started to play a lot better and they've always been a very good second half team. And I think that he is an easy guy to play with once they get it figured out. But it is a little late in the game to get it all figured out. It looked like they started to right before the All-Star break. Well, with Utah, I still worry about the whole Conley-Ingles-Mitchell triangle. It still, to me, feels like you have one too many ball handlers, and there's going to be one guy. Like, the numbers say, like, when it's Ingles and Mitchell, it's good. When it's Mitchell and Conley, it's good. But when it's Ingles, Mitchell, and Conley, 
they just haven't found the right mix because one of those guys has to be off the ball all the time in the three in the three guard lineup. That's my concern with Utah. And I well, think they started the season. Them. They started the season with poor results with Ingles on the bench. Maybe, maybe that is what happens with Conley. I mean, it would be very bold for Quinn Snyder to do that—a guy that gets paid thirty million dollars and you brought in as your, you know, huge piece. But if that is what is best for that team, it'd be interesting. I think you have to go that way because you look at the rest of their roster. You got to have O'Neal out there. He's their best defender. You got to have Bogdanovich out there. He's their best shooter. You got to have Gobert out there. So, like, it's just an arithmetic thing. And One let of those Con- guys and, take and then, a step back. And then, yes, it's a, you know, it's not necessarily what you envisioned or what you wanted to happen, but then go let Conley murder second units. But then it's like, why do you have Jordan Clarkson there? If you're gonna have Conley hold the ball, in the hey, you're still minute. you're still well, you're still gonna need somebody <laughs> to run with him. You know, still gonna need somebody to run with him. All right, of those other teams, is there any that you are particularly confident in getting it together? I mean, I think you're right about the Clippers. Like I was looking at their lineups. If they can play Kawhi, George, Morris, Harrell, that's just freaking nasty, man. That's four, six, seven guys who can defend, who can, and then three of them who can really shoot. You have Kawhi and George. What I'm wondering with LA, do you think Lou Williams takes a step back as Kawhi and George get healthier? That's what I'm watching with them. Is like, is he no, is he no longer as valuable given how much Kawhi is going to have the ball? You got Marcus Morris takes a lot of shots too. Like, is Lou Williams not their fifth option? I mean, certainly he takes a backseat to those guys. He's not going to be getting the same shots as those guys. But I do think Lou Will is a gamer. And so I do think when it comes playoff time and he's coming off the bench and, you know, I still believe in the him and Harold thing can, can be devastating, you know? And it, so it can be, but on defense, see, that's my guess is Lou Williams is kind of like Conley a bit like on this team. I'm just not sure he makes a ton of sense. He's still you're in playing the-, the Clippers. He's the guy you're going to attack every time. Yeah. But he, but when you've got those two guys at the wings, it's a lot harder to attack. They can, they, you can hide Lou Williams. You can. Not everybody has a bunch of, you know, uh, make a play off the ball guys, right? Or pick and roll mm-hmm. guys. And so they'll do what they, you know, they'll throw Kawhi on whoever the best guard is, or they can throw. Yeah, that's what, that's what makes them so devastating is both George and Kawhi. You can throw them on anybody to guard them. You can throw them on anybody you want to. And then you can just try to hide. Lou will when he's out there if you want to defensively um it's gonna be interesting though because you got a bunch of teams that still are not at the peak of their powers and got to figure this out in the last you know 25 games of the season all right second question what awards aren't locked up feels like mvp with Giannis is locked up Mm -hmm. do you think rookie of the year with john morant is locked up i think so for as great as Zion has been it's only been like, what, eight games. The Grizzlies are in the playoffs right now. He's been great. It's going to be hard to not give him the award, right? Like, you're a Grizzlies guy, but I think that's pretty safe to say. In terms right? of amount of games. There's just not an yeah. amount of games that Zion can get to, right? I mean, at most, he's playing less than half the season. I think they'd have to jump the Grizzlies in the playoffs, which is going to be hard because they're, what, five and a half games back with like 30 games left? Yeah, it's really hard. Look at how the Mavericks have been playing like roughly 500 basketball for like 30 games. And they're still, because they started off the season 17 and seven, it's still hard 
for anybody to track you down. I mean, because even if you even if you go on losing streaks, these teams got to, you know, they got to win a boatload of games. You, you're expecting if you play 500 basketball, the team behind you has got to be winning like eight out of every yeah, 10. 75 percent. Right. And, yeah, that, and, and, that, and it takes a friggin month. You know what I mean? It, it, sometimes that takes a month to play 10, 12 games and, and, and pull that off. All right. So the MVP, rookie of the year, coach of the year. Is that up in the air? I feel like Nurse has it in the bag now, right? After, after the last year, what's, I think it's gone on Toronto. I mean, you know I love Taylor Jenkins, but Nurse has a pretty good resume right now. With them being the number two seed, for sure. Yeah, after losing Kawhi. That's, that's, that's some coaching right there. They're on pace to outdo last year's numbers. Yeah, that's, that's a crazy. pretty impressive thing on your resume to have that. Sixth man is always like Lou Williams. I guess a couple of years ago was Aaron Gordon. Or Eric Gordon, not Aaron. Uh, sixth man of the year. So somebody that like, I, I guess this is still decided since neither of us just jumped out with a name immediately. I will say Schroeder. He's been great this year for OKC. Oh, that's if a you good switch one. It up. Yeah. Dennis Schroeder I mean, he, is a good one. He always closes games in that three point guard lineup. I mean, I wouldn't mind getting it to him this year to switch it up. I think that's actually a good one. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to see if there's anybody else. I can't think of anybody obvious is what I'm saying right off the bat. Schroeder's a good one, though. I like that. I, 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 could, get, I could get down with Schroeder. I think that's a fair one. Um, and then the last one, Defensive Player of the Year. I mean, it'll be Rudy Gobert's award, right? Uh, I mean, you could give it to Davis or Giannis, right? You could. So I guess it'll be, the, it'll be one of those three. Those will be the three guys that are there. Um, but I mean, I just feel like, like this has been the year that Gobert has finally gotten his rewards because you are seeing, you know, he finally just, he, he just they just put him on the all-star team, right? And so it starts to feel like, okay, now people are going to start giving Rudy Gobert credit. But you might be right. Anthony Davis, you know, kind of campaigned for it at the beginning of the year, saying that he wanted that award. And so it very well may be Davis, especially if, you look up at the end of the year and they are they've got that you know number 1 seed on lock so if you got the best player on the you know what i mean you got the, you got the best player or a best player on the best team you know weirdly i was i was thinking about gobert and the game that made me want to give him the defensive player of the year was a game they lost against Houston when Eric Gordon had 50 and they had gobert at the three point line and it was like oh wait a minute if gobert's not in the paint You've got like Bogdanovich and Ingles trying to guard people, and like it's not working at all. And you remember, <laughs> yeah, he's the whole defense in Utah. The rest of those guys, maybe him and O'Neal, everyone else is kind of average at best defensively, and they're a freaking amazing defense. And that's just like, okay, when Gobert's not there, this whole thing falls apart really quickly. There's an awesome team that has a chance of being the four seed in both conferences. Who is most scary? Because you're looking at this, and and, and so the way we're the way we're doing this is you know that the 4-5 is going to feed into the one seed. So if you are the Lakers and you are Milwaukee, it's who you would face in round number two. And as of right now, the Jazz are a half a game behind the Clippers. So if they were to leap the Clippers in this last part of the season, that would put them at three, therefore putting the Clippers and the Rockets at four and five. Um, 
But it could be Utah. It could be the Rockets. It could be the Clippers. could be the Thunder, the Mavs, um, any of those in that 4-5 game. And right now, it's Miami and Philly in the 4-5 matchup in the Eastern Conference. So if we just take those teams, Miami, Hmm. Philly, Utah, Rockets, Clippers. Who are you most scared of if you are the Bucks or the Lakers? In fact, let's throw the Clippers out because the Clippers. I was going to say that's too course. easy. Yeah. Okay. Of course, easy. of course, the Clippers. All right. The Heat and the Sixers, the Jazz and the Rockets. Who are you most scared of if you mm. are either Milwaukee or the Lakers? We've talked a lot about the Rockets, but if I'm LA and I watched that game, what was it like last week against Houston when Houston beat them? And I just the way Houston plays, it's just a wild card, right? Like, they're just a different type of team. You got Harden and Westbrook. I mean, to me, that's a team no one wants to face in the first round if, or like in the later state. It's Houston. They're like the one team that's kind of, you don't know what you're going to get from them because they're going to make you play their style of basketball, right? Like, you're going to have to play run and gun, score 120 to beat Houston. Well, to and me, that- that's the most scary. Or do the Lakers totally dictate that? And so it weirdly makes it easier, right? That they, If they were playing against Utah, you've got Gobert in there in the paint uh, to deal with Davis. And those things just become, you know, 96 to 92 dogfights. Whereas, are they able to slow down Houston and turn it into their kind of game? Because you know when it comes playoff time, LeBron's walking the ball up the court. They are not going to race up and down the court and take a million threes. And so you get them in that kind of game. And then when they throw, you know, Davis and Dwight and LeBron out there, that this small ball lineup just can't get a rebound at all. I guess because I guess you're right. Just because of the difference in style, it becomes more of a wild card, whereas they're probably just better than Utah. Yeah, I think against Utah, you know, I'm going to go small, play Davis at the five, spread out Gobert, expose the other guys, and then it's going to be Mitchell versus LeBron. I'm feeling pretty good about that. I mean, to me, the wild card, and then in the East, it's Philly. It's the same thing. Like, did you see Philly against the Clippers the other night when they benched Horford? That, and that's like, okay, let's remember, we still have Simmons and Embiid, and if we play three shooters with those guys, that's a lot of talent for a five. Oh, and they were unbelievable. I mean, look... There, there was a game uh, last week that I watched them, and somebody... Oh, it was that game. It was... Uh, okay, so Kawhi had come down. He did this move. He did this little up and under, and he finishes, right? And so the ball kind of goes behind the, the basket, and somebody's got to go get it, and then they're, now they throw it in, and like all four of them happen to be walking up at the same time, right? They're all kind of crossing half court at the same time, and it's Simmons, Embiid, uh, Tobias Harris and Horford. They were all crossing half court. And I'm watching this game. And as they are crossing half court, it's this visual of them like, all right, now they're crossing half court. They're going to go set up an offense. It's like freaking looking at four centers walking across the half court line. To get, I mean, they are huge. When it's all spread out, you can kind of forget. But as all four of them were walking across that half court line together, I'm thinking to myself, Good grief. I mean, the size of this team. And obviously, Simmons and Embiid were simultaneously awesome in that particular game that you're talking about with the Clippers. And I do feel like if you're the Bucks, 
they're going to put Embiid on Giannis. And one thing I was thinking about, I noticed Giannis always picks Embiid in these little all-star drafts. I think he respects his game. He's like, this guy is a freaking tank. He's huge. And like, that's the one guy who can keep Giannis out of the rim. Embiid's going to make Giannis shoot jumpers, which we'll see if he can do that in the playoffs. That at least gives you a chance. Whereas if it's Miami and you're Milwaukee, you're like, okay, it's Giannis. Miami is no picnic either, though. Now with Crowder, now with Iguodala, they they got Bam. I mean, they got some tough dudes to throw at you. They are. They They do, but Giannis is bigger than all those guys when it really comes down to it. I expect he'll score over them if he needs to. He's going to get in a war with whoever they play with. Trust me. Like they will Miami not. Flizz, that's going to be a rock fight, Miami Philly. That's going to be a rock fight of a series. Oh, I, I, if those two teams and you get the whole Butler thing versus Philly, oh my God. Could you imagine if that was our four or five matchup to feed into Milwaukee? I love to see Butler versus Simmons. I wonder if he can get in Simmons' head. That'd be interesting too. <laughs> well, we know Jimmy Butler will show up playoff time. Uh, last one, question four for the uh, post All Star break NBA. Charks, do teams even tank down the stretch? Given that we saw how the odds played out last year, Pelicans moving up to one, Grizzlies moving up to two, and then the Knicks, you know, end up with the third pick uh, overall. Cavs moving down, these other teams moving down. Um, is it worth tanking given? We saw how the odds played out and that this draft is, you know, does anybody care about getting, obviously you would rather have the number one pick than you'd rather have two, three, four, whatever, right? You you want the highest pick you could possibly get, but there certainly feels like there is absolutely no consensus on who the number one pick is even going to be. And we don't have, you know, we're pretty far down the line, certainly in college basketball. And then the guys that are not playing college basketball, we've probably seen the last of them until workouts and getting ready for the NBA draft. Do you think teams even tank down the stretch this year? See, I think the most egregious tanking has always been for protected picks. That's when you see teams really going. When it's like, okay, like if Memphis was bad this year and they had that top six protected pick to Boston, I think they would tank for sure. But that pick's already gone. And I was looking at the, like the future picks list. There's really no really bad protections this year where a team has a big incentive to lose. And I think that's what causes the most egregious tanking. So in that sense, no, I don't think so. There's no one who has to keep their pick this year who's going to lose it otherwise. And you're right. like The odds now are so even, it doesn't really matter anyways. Do you have a strong opinion of who will go one? I'm leaning towards Anthony Edwards. The Georgia kid. I mean, for as much as like he's got some real holes in his game, but then it's like, oh yeah, he's 6'5", 230, he can stroke threes, and he can dribble. If you catch him in the right now, he'll score 40 points, and it's hard to see a guy with that kind of physical talent. I think he'll end up going one, to my guess. I'm interested in seeing him, like especially in the SEC tournament and stuff. He's probably not going to get, I mean, he won't be playing in the NCAA tournament unless he got on a run and carried them all the way through. But I tell you, I saw Edwards this year. Um, played a game in Memphis, and if you would have not told me that he's top five on draft boards, there is absolutely no way I would have known by watching him. No way. Yeah, I mean, he's got some Wiggins in his game. He'll just disappear. I just, just, well, not, I just I just didn't... He doesn't make guys better. No, there's... There, and I've seen a lot of guys. I mean, I've seen... Look, 
everybody from De'Aaron Fox to Buddy Heel to all, and I've gone to the NCAA tournament a bunch of times over the years, and many times, like, look, even if you watch Duke last year, you watch Zion, you watch R.J. Barrett, you know, like, you see it immediately, and that is just that's that was not the case with uh, with Edwards, and and who knows, like, you know what I mean? It might have just been the wrong game to see him. Um, certainly has had some other big games this year. But when you're talking Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball, RJ Hampton I saw in person um, earlier this year. I would say uh, talking about guys not playing in the U- in the um, NCAA, don't be surprised some of these European kids start moving up. Uh, Killian Hayes, Denny Avija, Theo Maladon. These are names that are going to be popping up more and more as the American guys don't kind of do anything. Any of those that you're crazy about? I'm going back and forth, but I think Hayes is really interesting. He's a 6'5 point guard. He can really shoot it. He's 18. There's, I think he's got some D'Angelo Russell in his game, which is, you know, not the best thing in the world, but in a draft like this, there might be enough. Where's he playing? He's playing in Germany right now. Very good. I will make sure to check him out. Charks, you're the best. Thank you so much for filling in for KOC. Of course, and uh, we miss you, Kevin. Hope, hope you're back soon. Going to do it for another Ringer NBA show. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing as always. If you dig what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes. Five stars, five stars. It really helps. And we will talk to you on Friday.